Good morning, Southlands, and happy Father's Day to you. Uh, we are going to continue in the book of Philippians as we pursue resilient joy together. And uh, it is Father's Day, so I want to just make a few comments about uh, fathering and then look at the Apostle Paul as a spiritual father to this church that he, that he planted, these spiritual children, as he is not just teaching about joy, but modeling what it is to be a, joy, a joy-filled father uh, in the face of great adversity, glorying in the advance of the gospel, as we'll, we'll hear. You know, uh, fatherhood is an absolutely crucial institution in our cultural moment. It always has been, but particularly uh, today. And yet it's an incredibly complicated thing uh, in a moment where very often abuse of authority um, is something that people are most aware of. Uh, the absenteeism of fathers uh, has, has really caused such damage uh, in our culture. And I just want to encourage us all to honor dads that are doing their best. And one of my favorite uh, comedians is a guy called Jim Gaffigan, and he says, most fatherhood feels like going through customs with an outdated passport. And we know that so much of the un- just brokenness and upheaval of our culture is due to fatherlessness. Frederick Douglass said that it's much easier to raise strong children than to heal broken men. And so I just want to honor you, uh, dads, uh, for being present, for being courageous, for being sacrificial, for being consistent, and then for running back to Jesus when we are not those things and repenting and asking for strength. I had an early Father's Day uh, dinner with my kids because my oldest is actually driving back to Texas to start his football season. So last night, my kids give, gave me some gifts and uh, a card, and it was really interesting. Their comments were quite consistent. They, they thanked me particularly over the last three years, three years, three months. Felt, it's felt like three years, hasn't it? Uh, for being steady, for being steady. Thanks, Dad, for being a steady guide through these uncertain and turbulent times. And uh, I just want to say, fathers, Man, the Lord's grace upon you for being steady, not for being perfect, for being steady leaders in these turbulent times. Both our wives and our kids are needing that of us. So let's get into the text this morning. And uh, we're going to hear from this incredible spiritual father uh, as he helps these children with steadiness navigate the stormy waters that they are going through. Philippians 1 Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." So the big idea here of these six verses, verse 12 to 18, is 
that Paul is seeing suffering as, as a tool for gospel advance. And he wants to strengthen those that he is leading, even though he can't be with them, to see that actually God can sovereignly use our suffering and our hardship to bring glory to himself, to advance the gospel, and actually to make us more like him. That's the big idea. And we're talking about pursuing resilient joy uh, together. And I, I just want to see, want us to see in the light of this, how, how Paul is both modeling and teaching on how not to be knocked off our joy bike. Uh, especially when we hit these speed bumps, when we hit adversity, how to keep our focus on Jesus, uh, how, how to keep the gospel front and, and center. And the first uh, big idea that we see is that Paul puts God in charge of his circumstances. And he's calling us to put God in charge of our circumstances when our circumstances seem bad. As we remember that he is in a Roman prison, he has gone through trial, he's gone through shipwreck. We'll go through that a little bit more in detail. But, but he could very easily have put circumstances in charge and therefore his joy was under circumstances. But what he, want, he wants to say is, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, verse 12. So surely these Philippians would want to know how Paul got, to, got into prison. What were the circumstances of his arrest, of his trial? I'm sure they would have wanted to know the details of what it was like to be in this Roman prison. But actually, Paul doesn't give them the details. What he wants them to know, he says, I want you to know. Not how cold the prison cell is, not how harsh the guards are, not how bad the food is. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul wants them to understand his prison moment and their moment of persecution and division and upheaval from a divine perspective. I want you to know that what has happened has served to advance the gospel. So what has happened? Well, Paul doesn't actually go into all the details, but we find in the book of Acts that there's a riot in Ephesus, that there's a shipwreck that he goes through, that there's a trial, that there's an appeal to Caesar, and that there's at least a two-year imprisonment. Uh, there's times when he refers to being chained to a Roman god. Here he talks about being a part of uh, a prison that's guarded by the imperial regiment. But actually, more than those details, he's saying what has happened has rarely served. Can we see those words? Has rarely served. The word rarely is a superlative. Uh, our sort of current version of that would be seriously. It's seriously served. Or otherwise, it's, it's high key served. He's wanting to emphasize that actually these bad circumstances have actually catalyzed God's good work in, in the gospel. And what he's saying is that if God is in charge, if God is sovereign, he can really bend circumstances for his glory, for the gospel's advance, and for our, our good. And the word advance the gospel, what I want you to know is that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That word advance is a, 
is a beautiful word. It's, it's to blaze a trail like an army would, would blaze a trail into an enemy camp. So he's saying actually nothing has stopped the blazing trail of the advance of the gospel. Circumstances are not in charge of Paul's life and therefore not in charge of his joy. They're under the lordship of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but we can so easily, when circumstances are bad, we can put them in charge. And we can put them in charge of our joy. But what Paul wants the Philippians to know and wants us to know is that under the sovereign hand of God, circumstances are like a trampoline where the weight of someone coming down on a trampoline if that looks like the weight of bad circumstances, pandemics, protests, lack of a job, fear, anxiety, relational breakdown, it's like a massive person coming down on a trampoline and you are the small person waiting. And under the sovereign hand of God, actually God can use the downward trajectory of bad circumstances to double bounce us, shoot us up in the air. And get us more elevation. He can actually cause bad circumstances to project us and the gospel further. That is what a sovereign God can do. And the sovereignty of God, when God's in charge, when we understand He's ultimately in charge, it doesn't mean that everything that happens is what God wants. It means that God is able to turn what He doesn't want into what He does want. That's the sovereignty of God. You think of Joseph, that famous Bible character in Genesis, where he's sold into slavery by his brothers, and then he gets falsely accused of, uh, of rape by uh, his boss's wife, and then thrown into prison. I mean, the circumstances were terrible. People were evil. And yet God uses these circumstances to bend them. For the advance of his gospel. Joseph's testimony at the end of his life in Genesis 50 is this. Beautiful. He's, he's, he's really talking Paul's language. He says what man intended for harm. God intended for good. For the saving of many lives. And this promise is not just for special apostles in prison. It's not just for Joseph. It's for every single one of us. Who call Jesus Lord. Remember Romans 8. I'm convinced that God works in all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. God is sovereignly bending bad circumstances for the advance of the gospel, for His glory and our good. We're called to love Him and trust Him and give ourselves to His purposes. Think of the way in which suffering in your life has advanced the gospel. Has it? I keep on hearing stories of people with their neighbors, on Alpha Zoom chats, with their work colleagues, with their family, actually using this time of confinement for the advance of the gospel. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. One of my friends uh, texted me after last Sunday and said, my son, who's probably about seven years old, uh, has just crossed the line of faith. And actually kind of, he's saying like, this has been terrible, but actually... My son becoming a Christian, this is worth it. This father was rejoicing. I've heard just amazing stories about what is happening in, 
in Alpha right now. I want you to take a moment and look down at your feet. Look at your feet. Look at where you are, your circumstances, your family, your work life, your relational life. And instead of waiting for those circumstances to change, I want to ask that you would say, I am where I am. And God, where I am, I'm asking you sovereignly to advance your gospel. I'm not waiting to be in another place. I am where I am. Please advance your gospel. So that's the first big idea that Paul puts God back in charge of circumstances because that's where he is. But we need to remind ourselves that that's where he is. And then secondly, Paul has the gospel, I want to say, in the main street of his life. If the gospel were a town, it would have been main street in Paul's life. It's like he takes it from the suburbs and brings it absolutely front and center. It is absolutely primary. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So, so Paul's belief that God is in charge, that he's sovereign, doesn't make him passive with the gospel. It actually makes him more active. Let me just give you a little bit of a history into what the imperial guard was. The historians say that the imperial guard was 9,000 soldiers. It was this real, like, very high, high capacity regiment. And they changed guard every four hours. So you can imagine Paul being chained to a guard, and every four hours he gets a new one. Maybe he's got more than one. And he is just saying, I'm sure Paul had a chat about his town he grew up in Tarsus and his family. But very quickly, he brought the gospel front and center. And so God was using his imprisonment and even using how many guards there were and how often they changed. The gospel was spreading like a contagion. Why? Because Paul was faithful in speaking about Jesus. And make no mistake, to talk about the gospel was political for Paul. Let me tell you why. Because Caesar, the emperor of Rome, had a gospel. Every Roman citizen was called to believe the gospel of Caesar. And the gospel of Caesar was the good news that Caesar was conquering and subduing the whole world and bringing it under the rule of Rome. That was the gospel according to Caesar. And when Paul preached the gospel of another king who was bringing the whole world under his loving rule, not a violent rule, but a peaceful rule, it actually contradicted the gospel of Caesar. That's why he was in prison. But actually, Paul was saying, this king, this good king, there is another king, one called Jesus. And he is calling the whole world to bow their knee as subjects to him and receive his gracious gift of, of peace. The gospel was of first importance to Paul. And because he was bold about the gospel, there was this contagious boldness that people outside of prison that knew Paul were also being bold too. That's what he says in verse 14. Most of the brothers 
having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And it wasn't just throughout the imperial God. He actually says throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest. In other words, governors and captains and generals. Man, this news had just spread like a beautiful contagion. I asked you to look at your feet. Now I'm asking you to look at your chains. Think of the people that you are chained to, in a sense. That you are confined with. Perhaps your family, probably your family. Perhaps your work colleagues, even if you're zooming them in. Perhaps your neighbors in your street. Those people that you just can't get away from them. Maybe you want to get away from them, but you can't. Are you taking this moment to be faithful, to speak the word of God? You know, one of the gifts of this time of confinement is that it has been a great opportunity to disciple my children more closely. And uh, I was having a chat with two friends of mine who also have sons who are in their 20s there and thereabouts. And we all came to the conclusion that we hadn't been strong enough about really grounding our, our sons, our older sons, in the gospel. So over the last few weeks, we've actually sat with this big systematic theology book by Grudem. And we've been just sitting with our sons, three fathers and three sons, taking them through some key aspects of what it, what it is to trust in the authority of the scripture, what it is to wrestle with God the creator, uh, the sovereign God, what it is to apply the gospel to every aspect of our lives. This last Sunday we were together and I found myself saying to these three young men, you know guys, I am not fearful that you're going to become atheists. What I'm fearful of is that you're going to become compartmentalists. In other words, you'll have a God category, but then you'll have your romance compartment and your work compartment and your friend compartment and your sports compartment and your politics compartment. And, and God will be there. Jesus will be there. The gospel will be there, but he'll be in the suburbs of your life somewhere out there. And something else will be Main Street, your romance life or your work life or your physical life, or your sports life will be Main Street. And we just began to, to talk humbly but firmly about what it was to take the gospel and take Jesus and make him Main Street and have him feed all the other aspects of our lives. And we particularly talked about their romance lives and how important it was to see those through the lens of the gospel. Our oh, beloved, we are all in process of applying the gospel to every aspect of our life. But can I ask you to look at the different compartments of your life and saying, man, is the gospel front and center? D.A. Carson says one generation assumes the gospel, the next forgets the gospel, and the next opposes the gospel. We learn from Paul's life that Actually, even relationships in the church must be centered around the gospel. The gospel in these divisive times is the only thing strong enough to hold us together. 
Perhaps one of the reasons why we struggle to share our faith with unbelievers is that we're not gossiping the gospel together with believers enough. We talk about sports and the news and the stocks and all those things are great. But do we ever share together about the gospel just in backyard barbecues over coffee? The gospel comes front and center. Carson again says this, what must tie us together as Christians is our passion for the gospel. This partnership in the gospel, on the face of it, nothing else is strong enough to hold together the extraordinary diversity of people who constitute a church. I want to walk carefully here, but say, man, I believe we are called through the gospel to give ourselves to noble causes of mercy and justice, feeding the hungry, visiting the sick, bringing peace to the anxious, fighting racism, abolishing slavery. Let's be sure that we're doing these things. The gospel requires it, but let's be sure that the gospel is on our lips, that we're speaking of the name of Christ, not just doing gospel works. I've shared with you over the last few weeks that 30 years ago, I was part of a team that really began to speak out against racial injustice and, and, and apply the gospel of reconciliation. And I believe in that. I believe that's intrinsic to the gospel. But you know, sadly, today, 30 years later, about half of my team doesn't even believe in evangelism. They don't believe in the conversion of sinners to being reconciled to God. Their conversion is people becoming woke. They've actually lost the gospel. They've applied a little bit of it, but they've lost evangelism. They've lost the proclamation of Christ. God forbid that as we give ourselves to these necessary causes that we ever forget to gossip the gospel, to evangelize. Thirdly, Paul's joy is not just in the gospel being front and center, but Paul resists comparison like the plague, or should we say like the pandemic. In verse 14 he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So there's these two things that bring Paul great joy. The one is that through his imprisonment, the gospel is advancing. The other is that even though he can't get around, there's been this multiplied gospel boldness in other people. So it's not just like Paul the evangelist, Paul the super apostle. Actually, just the people of God are spreading the gospel. It brings them great joy. But there's a problem. There's a problem. And the problem is that there's two kinds of people preaching the gospel. Some are doing it out of love and goodwill. And others are doing it out of selfish ambition and envy. And Paul's saying, actually, they are critiquing him, saying that he's in prison not because of the gospel, but because he's a criminal. So they're making the pain of his imprisonment even greater, he says. As his ministry closes down, they are kind of making hay while the sun shines. They're saying, let's get going, man. While Paul's in prison, we can get going and build our ministry. Very sad. They preach with selfish ambition. 
intending to make my chains more painful to me. Talk about kicking a guy when he's down. And you know, Paul must have heard these rumors. He must have had people come to him, visit him and say, do you know that so-and-so is gossiping about you? Do you know that so-and-so is slandering you? Do you know that he's, he's saying, man, Paul's a criminal, but I'm the real deal. Imagine how that must have hurt Paul. But he rejoices. He rejoices. How does he rejoice as these people slander him and preach the gospel out of envy and selfish ambition? How is he so secure? I want to say not only are circumstances not in charge of his joy, but people are not in charge of his joy. Jesus is in charge of his joy. It's not that Paul doesn't care what people think. I mean, we know in the beginning he's yearning for these people with the affection of Christ. He's not a hard-hearted man, but he's learned to guard his heart. And he doesn't put them in charge of his joy. He's not comparing with them. He's not competing with them. He's running his own race, saying, actually, Jesus is the one that I'm to be faithful to. And he's able to rejoice. Oh, beloved, in this season, how we need to not put people and their opinions of us in charge of our joy. All of us have been stung at some point by people's critique from the left and the right all around, whether it's about COVID or whether it's about our current race crisis, whatever it is, mask or no mask, social distancing or not. I, I mean, it's dizzying, isn't it? And we really need to learn to guard our hearts in these divisive times. I'm learning slowly with the help of the Lord to refuse to put people in charge of my joy. Their opinions matter, but not more than the opinion, opinions of God. Uh, comparison is an absolute joy killer, isn't it? And it's not just in, in ministry, it's, it's in life, it's in work, it's in our friendship circle. Comparison is like an acid to our joy. And with our cancel culture, if we disagree with a person and they unfollow us or critique us publicly, man, let's just go back to say, look, as long as Christ is, is, is praised and he's glorified and his word is preached, I'm okay with that. I personally, as a pastor, have found my blood boiling as we have tried our best to meet within the restrictions and the guidelines that our government has given. And knowing other churches that are just disobeying them altogether and actually telling people, hey, we're not like those churches that are so slow in coming back. We're open. No masks, no social distancing, like hugs by the usher, all drink from the same cup, eat from, not quite that, but you know what I'm saying. And your blood can boil. But actually, at the end of the day, is Christ being preached? If we love Jesus and his gospel, we will find comfort in the fact that Christ is being preached. Do we realize that the revival that we have been praying for may actually come through people whose theology and approach to church we don't quite agree with? And are we okay with that? Part of, of resilient joy is refusing to compare. I think what happens is... We compare ourselves to other Christians thinking that there's only one prize and it's a winner takes all. Paul realizes it's not that. Each one of us, he says, have a race marked out for us with a prize set aside for us. 
And actually, we're not racing against our brother or our sister. We're actually fighting against ourselves. And success is faithfulness to Jesus. Fathers and mothers, if you want to raise resilient kids, teach them that life isn't fair. Teach them that people play dirty. But teach them that faithfulness to Jesus is ultimate success. Not beating the person on your right and your left. We need to avoid comparison like the pandemic. We need to practice social distancing from it. We need to put a mask over it. We need to check our temperature when we're getting into comparison mode and say, Lord Jesus, won't you help me to focus on your glory and your gospel? And finally, the Apostle Paul keeps resilient joy by living for a cause greater than his own. Living for a cause greater than his own. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You know, there is such a temptation in suffering, in trials and harm circumstances to become so self-absorbed. I, I talked about this last week, but it bears repeating. Martin Luther, that great reformer, talked about a definition of sin, not so much as transgressing, but as a soul curved in upon itself. The incurvation of the soul, and that tends to happen so easily in these days. We become so curved in on ourselves. And the Apostle Paul could have been forgiven for getting into self-pity and self-absorption. Not only is he falsely imprisoned, but people are slandering him and building their ministries while he can't build his. And somehow he finds grace to overcome this curvation of the soul in on itself. He displays a formidable overcoming of the sin of self-interest. Why? How? Because he is so taken up with the glory of Christ, the person of Christ himself and his gospel. Been so fascinated and just so enjoyed this documentary by Garth Brooks over the last a couple of weeks where he, he talks about his mom raising him uh, to give himself to a cause greater than his own life. Live for something bigger than yourself. And so we find that Garth Brooks at the height of his fame, he's just played to 850,000 people in Central Park, actually retires at the peak in order to parent his daughters. 14 years of parenting without any interruptions. You and I don't have the luxury to do that, but what a great example of someone who gives himself to something bigger than himself. Parents, I want to leave you with this, fathers and mothers. One of the best gifts you can give your children is to put them in touch with the persecuted church, with those who are preaching the gospel with great boldness under great persecution or pressure. It will help them to live for a cause bigger than their own. Of course, we live with pressure here in Orange County, great pressure. Our kids live with great pressure, but the connection to these people actually has a contagious boldness that will flow into our kids, a contagious resilience 
that will flow. And part of being a church that plants is that we have connection with these churches in Thailand and India and Nepal and parts of Africa where there's great persecution and pressure. I want to encourage you to expose yourselves, expose your kids to them. It will build a resilience and an appreciation that nothing can bind the gospel from advancing. I was on the phone to Dan Yu last night. Dan and Marsha planted this church in Thailand. And he was just so full of joy because he was going up to Yafu village. And I remember when we sent Dan and Marsha out about four years ago, Dan said that the Lord had spoken to him, saying, go to Thailand and show these beautiful people that I am a better father than they are experiencing. And so he's really taken, they've really taken care of, of, of orphans, particularly people who are fatherless and motherless. And in this Yafu village, which is an unreached people group up until two years ago, in fact, we know that missionaries went up two years ago and they killed these two missionaries. But actually Dan and a couple of other very bold missionaries have gone back and now there are 20 converts. And two of the converts were two young orphans who were drug addicts. But they've become wonderfully converted. They've come completely clean. And now they have been physically building the church, the very first church in this Yafu village. And Dan was just all smiles because he said, we're about to go up and do the ribbon cutting for this church. Brand new converts, brand new church built by these two orphans. And, and Dan just said, I feel like that prophetic word that God gave me to go to people who are fatherless and show them that God is a better father than they realize. He says, I feel like it's being fulfilled before my very eyes. He says, these two men are different men. And I'm having to father them. I'm ha having to teach them how to have life skills, ride a motorbike, do a budget. But he said, actually, the gospel has transformed them. Beloved, Let's put our hope in the gospel. It is not bound, even in confined times. Let's look at our feet and go, Lord, I'm not waiting until my circumstances change before I'm faithful to your gospel. Look at our chains. Who am I connected to? And let's be faithful in speaking. The Lord doesn't require that we are anointed and powerful. Jesus does the heavy lifting as we preach the gospel. He just requires that we are faithful. So let's be faithful and may the Lord furnish you and I with resilient joy. Amen.